This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And uh, I will be getting to your calls. Numbers again, 416-360-0740. Toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And as we've been reporting for the last few days, both Toronto and Peel regions, medical authorities have invoked their heavy guns, the so-called Section 22 orders that will allow them to shut down workplaces with more than five cases for a period of 10 days. That is not necessarily sitting well with businesses, especially manufacturers, who are warning about a potential terrible impact on supply chains and the manufacturing sector. And for more on that, let us go to Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Hi, Rocco. Hey, Libby. Thanks for shining a light on this. Well, thank you uh, for coming on the show. So uh, what is your view of this? I mean, this is obviously an emergency measure, uh, and we're in a bad situation. No question. And we we all agree that, um, you know, uh, to have a healthy economy, we need a healthy community. And that's why, um, you know, we most definitely want to see a uh, accelerated vaccination of essential workers be uh, more uh, and faster rollout and the, the Chamber of Commerce um, is uh, is helping with this and getting free rapid tests uh, into communities. We've just uh, piloted the last couple of weeks in, in KW and, and we'll be looking to take that across uh, the province. And three, uh, temporary government paid for um, sick, sick pay adapting the uh, the federal program filling in the gaps as we're starting to hear from the uh, the province because if a company is shut down through no fault of its own to serve the public health purpose then just like when an individual um you know uh, is is no longer employed through no fault of their own there's employment insurance then those businesses need to be compensated uh, it's great to say well we're going to pull out the the big guns fine, then you better be able to back that up because it will have significant uh, impact on on those those businesses and it needs to be compensated because this they would be taking one for the team. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people see this as, uh, you know, a, a big incentive for the businesses to offer paid sick leave. I mean, a lot of businesses already do. And a lot already don't. And it's the people who are at the lower end of the wage scale who are those who usually don't have that protection. And um, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But you also have businesses that have been through the incredible shocks of the last year are up to their eyeballs in debt and adding an additional cost. At this point, it's not like there are infinite dollars there either. And again, through no fault of their own, in order to meet the public health uh, requirements, which we all want to do, and other uh, other people who are then affected by those in order to fulfill the needs of public health are compensated, have their wages, uh, or uh, other kinds of subsidies. And so the same thing should um, should be there for uh, for businesses. Have you been talking to anyone in government about this? What's what's your view about whether it might happen? Uh, what I've heard about is some kind of temporary and uh, rebate program where a business would pay the worker and the business would would get the money back. Look, we're uh, we're happy to come up with. Um, facilitation mechanism so long as this is not um, looked to be um, a permanent addition to the cost of the business. Um, and again, because they are fulfilling then a public service by doing this, um, that um, they can be a, they can be a conduit, but we've been calling for temporary government paid, um, six days for months now. We've been calling for more in the way of testing and pushing on the acceleration of 
vaccination of essential workers and was delighted to see yesterday Ontario setting a new record for daily vaccinations, over 136,000. Uh, we just have to uh, make sure that uh, that you're really hitting the hot spots to break uh, uh, break that uh, that chain of transmission that is feeding the numbers that we're seeing that that are rightfully uh, causing uh, alarm uh, throughout the province and therefore needs to be addressed with concrete measures. What about narrowing the definition of essential workplaces? I mean, there are a lot of things operating that are not essential, and anyone will tell you that if they, for instance, want to have any kind of renovation done, if they need wood, anything like that, it, it's it's almost impossible, and the prices have skyrocketed because uh, there are a lot of people doing work that, that perhaps, uh, you know, is not entirely essential. This is so incredibly uh, difficult, Libby. It's like being asked, you know, who's your favorite child? Uh, And everyone and every business and every job is essential to the person whose job it is, whose business it is, um, and and their customers um, as well. Um, Can that be, can you have a, a reasonable discussion around it and look for additional, additional ways? Absolutely. But Shutdowns, again, are blunt instruments that, in many respects, then are admission of failure of not taking additional steps up front. And again, if you do more in the way of uh, directed vaccination, if we do more with rapid testing, which until recently was really being held, uh, held up, even though the federal government had bought millions upon millions of the tests and given them free to the provinces, uh, but we're now uh, we're now seeing movement on that to give additional control, additional comfort uh, on uh, on this front. So let's uh, let's not just think of the blunt instrument. Let's look at every step um, along the way, and let's understand if people, through no fault of their own, are affected by this in order to fulfill a public good. Then the public should be part of of uh, paying for it in the way that we are across a whole host of programs during this uh, incredibly difficult and tragic time. Okay. Rocco Rossi, thank you so much for this. Uh, Take care. Much appreciated, Libby. Okay. uh, In just a moment, we will be talking to the President and CEO of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. First, I'm going to take a call from Daniel, who has been waiting patiently. Hello, Daniel. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? Yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to correct uh, what David Del Duca and uh, Andrea Horbath are going around saying that uh, only hot spots that have considerable MPPs are being done. My daughter was done. They went door to door in Jane and Finchick, and my daughter was done. She got her shot. And it's not represented by a conservative MPP. It's represented by a new Democratic MPP. Okay, well, I, I think what they were saying that there were some cases where they they were alleging that there were some cases where that happened. But I'm I'm very glad to hear that your daughter got her vaccination, and that was where Jane and Finch. Yeah, Jane and Finch. That's where she lives. An apartment building. You went door to door in the three apartment buildings in where she lives. Okay, well, that is very good news indeed. I bet you're pleased. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, Daniel, thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, well, as uh, as promised, let's bring in Dennis Darby, President and CEO at the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Dennis, thank you so much for being with us. Well, th- thank you for having us on. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, well, uh, your take on this Section 22 order is that it can do big damage. Uh, tell us about your concerns. So, I mean, I mean, our, our first of two things. First of all, our biggest concern, of course, is is you know is that Ontarians still have to make sure we have the food we need, the, the, the uh, medicines we need, because uh, these uh, orders or the piecemeal orders around the, the province, we really need some leadership. Let me tell you, from a from a provincial point of view, Ontario, you know, is very much the breadbasket of 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 Canada, and the area around the GTA is the breadbasket of of uh, on, you know of the rest of the province. So I think we just need to. We're really hopeful hopeful that we can have some. Uh, 
provincial leadership and say, okay, what are the rules going to be? How are we going to make sure we protect people being able to get uh, the food they want, they need, the consumer products and the healthcare products? That's our real concern that it's, uh, that you, you know, that we try to do it on a, you know, a, a region by region basis. Let's, let's look at, you know, where, where do we, what, who do we need to protect? What workers do we need to protect? Let's make sure that we can, we're doing our best to protect those supply chains. That's, that's our concern. I, th- I think it makes, it, it's not like Ontario is an island uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, it's a, it, it only, it only produces, you know, food for the people in Peel or, or, or pharmaceutical products for the people in Toronto. Uh, can you just uh, be a little more specific? So, yes. so how would sh- shutting down, uh, you know, <clears throat> sorry, one or two uh, factories or, or facilities in Toronto? How could that endanger a supply chain? And and which supply chains, other than food, do you think are most at risk? So, so first of all, so you know, what the, you know, our, the concern, of course, is are the, the people of Ontario and making sure that we have the products we need. We, manufacturers have been working through the whole through the whole pandemic to make sure we have the, the products we need, just like the essential workers in, in, in retail and in healthcare. But at the uh, so yeah, so let's let, maybe to give it some statistics. Let me go ahead. Ontario, Ontario is about forty five percent of all manufacturing in the country, and the area in the GTA is the vast majority of that. So, so. Uh, people in Ontario produce food products, whether you know whether it's perishables, whether it's pharmaceutical products, whether it's you know sterilization or cleaning products, or not just for Ontario, actually for North America, as we're really we're really integrated. So it's so it's you know a decision to 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 shutter a, a plant for any period of time. You know once obviously once they've done an investigation and once we figured out what you know is there have the companies done a proper job of. Tracking, tracing, testing, and are we, you know, are we doing vaccines? But at the end of the day, if the if the province deems that we have to to, to shut down a facility, we just got it's at least worth looking at. Okay, what you know, who is this? Who, which which Ontarians is this going to impact? Uh, that's all we're asking, and we're we've asked the provincial government uh, since uh, we started hearing about various health units doing this. You need to step up and say how how are we going to do all the things we've talked about for months around you know screening testing and vaccinating the people in those who are, like you said at the beginning, Libya, are essential workers. You know, so our food how, supply and our medicine supply is our essential workers. How would this, uh, you're saying that, that invoking these orders will hurt the manufacturing sector. So is it just that because of their work interruptions? And, 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 the, and their employees, obviously, because, uh, you know, it, it, we, so I think that Yes, we're talking about making sure that we have those products. It's not, it's not the, it's the manufacturers them, themselves. I mean, some of them are part of you know, large supply chains, and they'll have, there are, of course, long you know, implications if they can't produce, uh, and if they, uh, if they, if they get, uh, but more importantly, it's you know, making sure that we have the, the, the food supply, the medicine supply, the, the product supply we need to, to keep operating. So I think that's the, that was our concern, and we, and we prefer you know, a, a set, Single set. I've talked to a number of manufacturers. Let's have a single set of rules across the province. I think you know we'd be we're very supportive for those companies that can't afford it. Make sure that we have some way to have you know, a sick pay because nobody wants a sick employee to come into the plant, asymptomatic or symptomatic. You know, every good every good manufacturer is is doing screening at the plant gate or at the or at the plant entrance. But they're not do- offering sick days. Many of them are. Many of them are. I think that's. I think in the manufacturing sector, this is an incredibly competitive sector. Prior to the pandemic, Libby, we you know we couldn't hire enough people because of the nature of the you know because manufacturing has been you know an under you know understaffed uh, sector for for a number of years for a whole pile of reasons. We're not going to talk about today, but even through the pandemic, so uh, many employers. I know a number of companies. That many remember most manufacturers are either very large and they tend to have union contracts or or are. Or small family-owned. Where you know, yes, I know of manufacturers who have had to shut down even because of a, a you know a false positive, but a, with an abundance of caution, they they paid their employees. So I think you'll find most manufacturers will provide that support. But where they can't, we have spent so many hundreds of millions of dollars at the federal and provincial level for this. Tech. Now I think it's really important that we make sure that we have that reassurance for employees to say, you know what, we have you know we have you covered in terms of paid sick days.
there is one thing I'd like to uh, per- pursue before we yeah. wrap this up, and that is, so if these manufacturers have paid sick days, is it a case where the employees aren't taking advantage of them and are coming to work sick? I don't. First, in our sector, I don't. I certainly don't know whether they're. You know, there most manufacturers that are the ones a member of our association. And we, you know, we're asking them to to do those that regular screening. I think what we actually really need, look, if I could, we need to get those rapid tests. The province has got we got millions of doses of the rapid antigen test. That's been proven in the U.S. and around the world as a really effective way to prevent people bringing the virus into. The workplace. Let's get those out as quickly as possible in those regions where we're seeing, you know, the, the you know the largest concentration of cases. That is one step, and then of course vaccination. So uh, I I hope that employees are not going to work sick. Every employer I've talked to said we don't want people to come to work when they're sick or they feel and if they and they should be getting screened out at the plant gate. But if they're not, let's get some testing in place as quickly as possible. Okay, Dennis Darby, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, I'd be curious to know numbers where of, of places that have uh, had outbreaks, even if they do have paid sick days. Right now, we have to take another break, be taking more of your calls. And when we come back, we will have both medical officers of health who are invoking this Section 22. We'll have that on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, Before we get to our next uh, thing, I will take a call from Pat, who's been waiting patiently. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. Uh, I don't know why we keep on blaming the Canadians, as I tried to tell everybody. The problem started in the U.S. Uh, Trump didn't react properly. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're spending too much time beating each other up. But I would suggest that maybe the government might, the Ontario government might have considered having some sort of a coalition type thing like they have done in wartime, where you invite others to sit at the table when they're having these meetings so that everybody is more or less on the same page. I mean, we keep, and it's the same thing with the doctors. We have every other doctor coming on with a different, a different piece of advice, which gets very confusing for the for the. Except, the you know what? There are a couple of very common threads among the doctors on on that advice. And um, Pat, I have to sadly point out that right now we are way behind the United States. We are doing worse than the United States. As a matter of fact, the worst place in the United States, Michigan, is actually blaming Ontario for their huge spike in cases. So, well, I uh, but I agree with you that, that maybe uh, all the finger pointing, we're at the finger pointing stage and, and maybe that's really not going to help exactly. anything. Exactly. If we'd had the vaccines, we would be much better. The, the, I did look at the death rate before, and Canada's death rate was less than half of that in the U.S. Okay, thanks, Pat. We've got to let you go now. All right. As we were saying, Peel was the first to announce the Section 22 order that will take effect Friday. The City of Toronto is doing the same thing. Let's go to Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Well, it's a, like we are at a very, very difficult point in the pandemic, as I'm sure you can appreciate. You know, I'm hanging in there. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, uh, another difficult day with a very large number of cases. Yeah, hospitalization numbers like we haven't seen before. So, and incredible stress in the healthcare system, uh, really doing their best to try to manage the, the sheer volume of patients. Uh, some of whom are are really quite sick. Mm-hmm. And is there enough uh, equipment still? The specialized breathing equipment. Well, you know that that is certainly under pressure. But I think the challenge that's most significant is the health human resources. We need skilled staff to actually run those equipment and provide that direct patient care. I'd like to talk about the section. 22. Was it a matter that you followed Peel or did you do it kind of in concert together? 
Yeah, we were working on this together. And, you know, sometimes as you do that, the timing doesn't always line up with respect to the announcement, but certainly the work uh, and the pre-work to to, uh, get to that point was done together. We have both been the hotspots, if you will, of the province, but, you know, the circumstances specific to Peel are ever so slightly different to that which is happening here in Toronto. So, uh, we each uh, worked on it together, but had to forge our own path. Um, you know, when the uh, when you get to the point where you're dotting the i's and crossing the t's. So, how many of these types of workplace outbreaks have you had in Toronto? Well, we've had many workplace outbreaks over the course of the pandemic. I don't know if I have the exact number with me, and we continue to have workplace outbreaks. But given what we know now around the variants of concern. We really felt that, you know, this was an opportunity and a tool that we had in our toolkit to help really work towards reducing spread of the virus in workplaces, given that these are places where people are working together. So you actually have to have people in contact with each other in order for for virus to spread. I'm just trying to get a fix on what you said, that the circumstances here in Peel are are somewhat different. So what are the types of workplaces in Toronto where we've had outbreaks and how are they different from, you know, the warehouses and and those types of places in Peel? You know, I don't know that I can do um, a a direct uh, comparison one to the next because I'm less familiar with that which is happening in Peel. But I can say in Toronto that certainly we have seen um, outbreaks arise in, in virtually every kind of workplace. Yes, those manufacturing and processing plants, but also in, in, in you know, smaller businesses of all kinds, um, service industries, um, over and above manufacturing and processing um, types of uh, facilities. But at the end of the day, what is often common amongst these places, it's when people let their guard down that we start to see transmission happening. When people get too close to each other, especially without appropriate um, personal protective equipment, use of masks or face shields, that kind of thing. That's when we see uh, most of the activity arising, Uh, whether it's in a lunchroom or a break room, um, you know, or, you know, outside hanging out for a little bit, uh, you know, people in uh, sometimes getting together for a smoke break, frankly. Uh, these are the circumstances that have given rise, uh, we know, to uh, some of the outbreaks within our workplaces. Have you also found that the the circumstances in the workplaces themselves, as they are laid out by the employers, are also unsafe? Libby, what I would say is that we've seen so, so many employers really doing the very best they can uh, to create safer environments within their workplaces, whether it's around promoting people who to stay home or to work from home wherever that's possible, uh, really good deployment of infection prevention and control measures, things like active screening, uh, you know, making sure that people are checked as they come in in the morning for symptoms that might be consistent with a COVID infection. And and quite frankly, there are some workplaces that are not as good at doing these things. And we have found that in those locations where there are challenges with respect to uh, implementing good infection prevention and control measures, those do create circumstances that give rise to spread of COVID-19. And this is what we're seeking to address through the use of this tool and certainly uh, through a more supportive method. Uh, You know, we we do... um, provide advice uh, and support uh, to workplaces uh, when it comes to infection prevention and control, particularly when we hear about cases, which the uh, employers are obliged to tell us about if they've got two or more within their workplace setting. Uh, Was this a kind of last resort? Uh, I don't know that I would call it a last resort. What I would call it is just, you know, good use of the tools that we have available to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a, an ongoing um, effort on the part of public health to really use the evidence that we have available to us and the tools that are available to us to control risk. Uh, we know that the variance of concern, uh, that B117, is just much more transmissible relative to what we saw with the old variant of COVID-19 that was circulating um, and we feel at this point in time that this is a reasonable step to take 
in order to try to enhance the safety of essential workplaces so that we can both control COVID-19 to the greatest extent possible, while at the same time uh, supporting essential businesses and workplaces to continue to deliver goods and services that actually help our community run. Uh, uh a lot of people are seeing this as a way to force the hands of either employers or the provincial government to do something about sick days. Uh, was there any of that? Because uh, an employer, frankly, would be uh, more inclined to offer sick days if they know that the alternative, they might be shut down for 10 days. Well, you know, Libby, I've been very, very clear that there are all kinds of actions and that we support all the actions that can be taken, uh, that are implementable and can be made to work that actually help support bringing COVID-19 spread under control. And one of those measures is certainly um, provisions that help allow people to stay apart if they're sick. And, and paid sick days is absolutely one of those. So this, the Section 22 order, is another one. So as you can see, uh, we have worked to implement those measures that we can on our own that actually advance the goal of uh, reducing transmission, particularly in workplaces. And we've been quite vocal for our support uh, for things like paid sick days that allow people to, you know, take the right decision to stay apart if they're sick, uh, rather than having to, you know, think about, you know, will this threaten the uh, safety uh, of their family, uh, you know, their ability to put food on the table or to pay rent, you know, that shouldn't be a choice that anyone has to face. Uh, it certainly won't help us uh, get to the other side of the pandemic if that's the kind of choice that people are left uh, having to make. Okay, that was Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila. And now let's go to Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for Peel Region. Hi, Dr. Lowe. Hey, I love you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So uh, you were the first to announce invoking the Section 22 order. Uh, I would imagine that is, is it kind of a last resort? What drove you to that now? Well, you know, I, I think to the extent that, uh, and you just had Dr. Davila on, uh, you know, our Peel Public Health and Toronto Public Health had continued to see and continued to jo discuss and work together on this uh, in identifying uh, ongoing outbreaks in uh, workplaces that remained open as uh, one of the significant drivers of transmission in our community, uh, both uh, for individuals uh, in those jobs who are getting sickened and then subsequently for them bringing it uh, home uh, to their families and, and sickening people there with this ongoing cycle between uh, workplaces and homes and then back into other workplaces. So I, I think to the extent that, especially with the variants, uh, we have been seeing outbreaks in Peel uh, that are often uh, spreading further and faster uh, and just are greater in number. Uh, we really needed to take this approach to just try to get ahead uh, of the ongoing spread and this uh, this really uh, significant third wave in our community. Uh, a lot of people, uh, my, myself included, see this action by you as a way of f forcing the hands of either employers or the provincial government to provide some paid sick days. Uh, was that part of the motivation, or or do you? I think I, I think to the extent that we have been calling our uh, our essential workers in Peel, uh, you know, I think the specific uh, decision uh, to update our workplace section twenty two order. Uh, really was respecting the fact that uh, our outbreaks tended to, by the time we got to them, they tended to have spread further, uh, faster. We were just tired of seeing workers sickened, uh, workers extent that we're trying to bring this third wave, uh, very significant third wave under control in the region of Peel, where our hospitals are uh, overflowing. Uh, and uh, our, you know, our, uh, it really was an attempt, uh, mostly, to try to get ahead of this virus and, and really try to break. You know, I don't want to be one of those really annoying armchair quarterbacks, uh, but why didn't you do it sooner? It's a great question. And so to the extent that the, the variants have really changed the game, uh, and a great example included the uh, there was a large distribution warehouse that we closed in the middle of March, um, subsequent to uh, two weeks of significant spread that we had detected. But before uh, the variants were really in the picture with the wild-type coronavirus, uh, you know, our outbreak investigations, uh, the ability to contain spread within workplaces while allowing them to continue to operate uh, was very much, uh, you know, a, a possibility. 
uh, you know, in general, uh, we also recognize that uh, many of these have uh, the, the disruption of some of these services, uh, you know, has implications. But now, because the variants are spreading so quickly and so fast, and because we have so many outbreaks that are essentially caused by the variants, um, you know, the the scales have tipped over where uh, there is an immediate health risk here that is now addressed by the Section 22 uh, that really needs to be addressed uh, above and beyond any potential for, uh, for you know, temporary disruption. I, I was just talking to the head of the Manufacturers and Exporters Association, and he said, actually, a lot of his members do have paid sick leave. So do you have a handle on what percentage of your many outbreaks are in places that don't have it and, and what percentage may be in places that do have it? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think to the extent that we haven't uh, necessarily been uh, auditing employers as to whether they provide paid sick leave or not, I do know that many of the closures, uh, voluntary, voluntary or otherwise, that have occurred in the region uh, have seen employers usually take care of their employees. And I hope that that continues because there is a recognition uh, that, uh, that employers uh, really do need to take care uh, of their employees as they continue to sacrifice to protect the community. But I think further to the point, though, we have clear data that, uh, you know, employees uh, were showing up sick. Um, and uh, and to the extent that we only know with closures, uh, we don't know the rest of the outbreaks and the pieces, how much of that was really caused by the incentives uh, for people to go in because they just felt that they wouldn't get paid sick leave uh, unless it was an extraordinary situation like a closure. Our analysis in early January showed that out of 8,000, almost 8,000 cases that we looked at, one in four of our cases that wow. tested positive for COVID-19 had actually reported showing up at work after their symptom onset date, meaning that they showed up to work sick. Now, one of the things that I keep seeing, certainly on, on social media, people posting pictures of very crowded public transit, talking about uh, a lot of people being on there unmasked. And I know authorities keep insisting that there's no transmission on public transit. And it's frankly something that I find very hard to believe. Well, transit is an interesting one. It's one that we continue to monitor. And the important thing that you have to remember is uh, that we have a baseline risk that exists in our community. Uh, right now, we have widespread, propagated, severe community transmission of the COVID-19 virus. And so to the extent that uh, your engagement in transit or your engagement in any sort of uh, um, interaction with anyone outside of your household presents a risk, uh, that really speaks to the need to ensure that you are masking, that you are distancing, and all those other pieces, because there is a background risk uh, of, uh, of exposure uh, just given how high our rates are, regardless of whether it's transit or elsewhere in our community, someone else that you might be seeing in a social context or whatever the case might be, there is a background risk. And that is why we are recommending that people reduce their contacts, stay at home as much as possible, favor virtual and all those other preventive measures uh, that we put out there, regardless of the setting they may be uh, you know, moving about our community in. Uh, this takes effect on Friday. Are you expecting to actually shut anyone down on Friday or preparing to do that? Yeah, certainly we're, we're uh, looking through our, our active investigations. We're also uh, continuing to have new uh, outbreaks reported to us every day. Uh, I think uh, obviously there, there is a, a clear need. Uh, that's why the order has gone in place and that's why the notice was given. Um, and so to the extent that this is meant to move quickly to address uh, change of transmission in workplaces, I imagine the application of it will also be swift to ensure that we are taking every opportunity uh, to protect our community. Okay, so we got to stay tuned on Friday. Anything else you'd like to leave us with, Doctor? No, I think the most important thing as well is that we're not going to be able to vaccinate our way out of this wave. We need to have these measures to address things, certainly the move of school in person and having the school community stay home as much as possible uh, to reduce contact interactions. And now this move, these are all going to be very important pieces. But vaccines do remain important. And in the region of Peel, we're now vaccinating uh, 50 plus in provincially defined hotspots, 60 plus uh, throughout the region. Um, and if you are uh, in other eligible groups, which can be found on peelregion.ca forward slash COVID-19 vaccine. And I would really encourage you, if you're eligible, book your shot without delay, the same website. And let's uh, make sure that we can uh, hopefully get out of this, increase our vaccine coverage and start gradually reducing measures for good. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence Lowe. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. 
Good afternoon and welcome. Well, we are now living the nightmare scenario that the experts predicted. It's the height of the third wave. The provincial case count has been up over 4,000 many times in a row. The provincial government, which enjoyed widespread support at the beginning of the pandemic, is coming under increasing fire. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is calling for Doug Ford's resignation. And while that demand from an opposition leader is not unusual, the question is, why now. So I would like to hear from you. Uh, what's your, what are your thoughts on, on how the government is doing? Are they falling short? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario. Hello, and thanks for being with us. Hi, Libby. Thank you very much for having me back on. Okay, so why now? Why is now the time you're calling for Doug Ford's resignation? So I think that the announcement we saw Doug Ford make last Friday, uh, that would be the announcement, as I'm sure your audience will remember, in which he decided to completely ignore the advice from his own science table uh, and not introduce paid sick leave and not redefine essential work so that it was far more limited and not do all of the other things that the doctors and the scientists know will help us get through this ordeal, and instead chose to trample on our civil liberties and to close playgrounds. That, to me, was the straw that broke the camel's back as it relates to being so clear that Doug Ford is in over his head. And at this point, his recklessness is dangerous. This is a life-and-death situation for far too many Ontarians, And the fact that Doug Ford just does not have the capacity to get us through this ordeal, he made abundantly clear last Friday. That's why I made the decision, and I didn't make it lightly, to call on Doug Ford to get out of the way, to step aside, and give us the leadership we need from the scientific perspective to get us through this. Well, uh, you know, even uh, staunch supporters said, look, they had a bad week, and, and within 24 hours, they realized that they had made mistakes, and, and they walked both those things back, at least to some extent. Is that, is that not, uh, and they've done that in the past, frankly, is, is that not good enough that uh, they realized when they really make a mistake? No, I don't think it's good enough anymore to be really uh, clear about this. I think, again, you know, we all are hearing more and more stories during this third wave because of the variance of concern of more people in our own, let's say, networks, our families, our friends who are getting sick, younger people who are getting sick, still older people who are getting sick, frontline educators, daycare workers, essential workers getting sick, far too many still dying in this province. And to know that Doug Ford took the advice, and this is not Stephen Del Duca only saying this, Libby, this is members of his science table, leading members of his science table who are beside themselves and speaking openly and publicly to say, we gave the premier a list of things that would help us get through this. He ignored the list. He went in completely the wrong direction. This is, this is no longer about, oops, I made a mistake. Let me off the hook and forgive me one more time. Not at this stage. Not after 13 months of going through this crisis, and we find ourselves, after all the sacrifice and suffering from the people of Ontario, to now be in the worst shape we've been in since this crisis began is just clear. It's a clear, abject failure of leadership on Doug Ford's part, and it's because he doesn't know how to get the job done. Um, And we, of course, have been talking to those members of the science advisory tables uh, on their take. And and yesterday they did release a letter putting it all in writing because uh, one of of the things that I have to say was uh, a bit mind boggling to watch was to uh, hear them say very closely that the government didn't listen to them and for the government to get up in the House and say, actually, we're listening to the science. Uh, At this point, uh, first of all, what do you make of these Section 22 orders invoked by the medical officers of health in both Peel and Toronto? Uh, I've heard it described by some as a mutiny. Uh, They're certainly trying to lower the temperature on that, but they are taking the action to close workplaces where more than five people become ill. What's your reaction to that? Well, so first of all, I would say, you know, Dr. Dr. Davila are showing the kind of leadership that obviously has been missing from from the premier 
and his own team now for the last number of weeks, but in particular the last couple of weeks. It's interesting to me. You know, I suspect if Dr. Lowe and Davila were Dr. Davila were on the air right now, they would if Doug Ford had introduced paid sick leave a month ago, six months ago, 12 months ago, when I first called for it, uh, if he had limited the list of essential workplaces, if the safeguards were in place, if people had paid time off to get a vaccination, I mean, just, and I'm just mentioning two or three of the things that, you know, safer and healthier classrooms and, and all that, the whole list that the scientists have been telling all of us and telling Doug Ford that he needs to do. I suspect Dr. Lowe and Dr. Davila would not have needed to take action they did this week around using that Section 2022 power, but they had to because there's there's nobody in charge at the top. Doug Ford is missing in action uh, and has been for quite some time. Let me also really quickly point out to your listeners, Libby, we've now discovered that, you know, the, the, the horrible announcement came Friday. We've now discovered that the night before when, you know, I say this is a former senior cabinet minister, you'd think that the premier would literally be focused exclusively on the work at hand, the task at hand, the crisis, the people of this province, We've now discovered that, in fact, the night before that announcement was made, Doug Ford was on a Zoom fundraising event for his own political party where the top ticket price was $1,000. Where is the judgment in this moment of crisis to say, I'm going to be off fattening the coffers of my own political party for next year's election campaign instead of worrying about the people of Ontario? He's a disgrace, and he has to go. Uh, wow, I hadn't heard that. Uh, so, uh, you who I mean, what what is your suggestion? I mean, my observation is that uh, we are at the stage where various levels of government are blaming each other, and there is plenty, plenty, plenty of blame to go okay. around. Uh, and uh, I, you know, when I look around, frankly, I don't. Aside from the Maritimes which took uh, their action, but it's a very different place. No, I, I don't really see who would be doing a better job, to be frank. So, so yeah, no, like, that's a fair observation. I, I agree with you regarding Atlantic Canada. I, what I said last Thursday, it's interesting. Ford's horrible announcement was Friday, but Thursday morning, the day before, I said, because it was clear Ford wasn't listening to the scientists, and I, like, I'm a politician, and I have a ton of respect for democracy, but but this ordeal, the COVID-19 pandemic, these are not normal times. This, we are, 15 million of us in this province, we are at war against this virus and what it is doing to, to, to literally disrupt everything that we hold so dear. These are not normal times. And so what I said last Thursday was, it's time for Doug Ford and the other politicians around him to literally get out of the way. And, and instead, what we need in this province is a true a COVID czar, is the term that I use to describe the position Somebody with uh, unimpeachable scientific integrity, a Dr. Steiny Brown, a Dr. David Naylor, Peter Uni, there are others that are on the science table currently. Give them the authority, invest in them the authority to go through the rest of this war against COVID using only the science and their judgment. What we have instead is we saw this in real time last Friday. Advice from the science table goes into a cabinet meeting. It's like a big black hole. Doug Ford tells us these meetings go on for days, hours. We don't know who's whispering in his ear. We don't know who's lobbying him. We don't. I've been in the cabinet room in the previous liberal government. A lot of people around that table do not have a scientific background or medical expertise. And yet they're the ones that are translating the scientific advice into the actions that have taken us so badly off course. I want the politicians out of the way. I want to stop hearing about Doug Ford's decision making. I want the science to prevail. And that's the way I think we'll get through this ordeal. Um, you know, there there are inklings that the province is finally going to consider some type of provincial paid sick leave. Now, yeah. what we're hearing from the province is that's because they were hoping for some kind of improvement in Monday's federal budget. It didn't happen. You know, frankly, my take is that these Section 22 orders might be exactly the thing that is forcing their hand because employers now, uh, if they don't provide sick leave, that what they might face is uh, a 10-day shutdown, which is far more expensive. So what's your view? What do you think is the motive force for them finally considering, and we don't know if they'll go ahead with this? Well, look, I, I sent my first open letter to Doug Ford on reinstating paid sick leave in March of 2020, March or April of 2020. Every other opposition leader has done a similar thing. Municipal leaders across the GCHA and beyond, the science table, doctors everywhere, everybody's been begging for this. 
it's been a year, Libby. And so what I think, as much as I respect Dr. Lowe and Davila around the decision they made on the Section 2022 stuff, what I think has happened to this government is they're now scared about their own political instincts. And that's a tragic thing for me to have to say. Uh, They are concerned that the wall of fury that they were met with last Friday after that announcement Doug Ford made, when he has been completely unwilling and unprepared to lift a finger or make the investment necessary to reinstate a provincial government-funded paid sick leave program for a year, and suddenly now that his own political fate is at risk, uh, he's decided to move. Here's my biggest fear. They're going to, you know, I'm hearing the same thing. They're going to do something. And let me just say, I'm encouraged to know that at least they're considering it. But what we've witnessed in the last couple of weeks in particular is the height of incompetence and even negligence. I'm worried they're going to get it wrong. So I I said this this morning when I was talking to some other media. I'll repeat it here on your program. Ontario Liberals stand ready and willing and I think able because we did deliver on paid sick leave prior to 2018. We want to help. There are lots of people across the economy and across society who have expertise in delivering programs like this. I hope to God Doug Ford and his team actually bring in real advice, well-intentioned advice to get this right, because we absolutely need to do so. I am concerned they won't get it right, that it will fall short, that it'll be another half measure, but I hope I'm wrong. Now, the Labour Minister, Monty McNaughton, had said, hey, uh, no other province has done this. Yeah, well, Monty McNaughton is not the Labour Minister for Saskatchewan. He's the Labour Minister in Ontario, so I don't even understand how that comment is germane. Ontario's numbers continue to go in the wrong direction. We are not vaccinating at the rate or in the right way, as per what's happening in some other places around this country. You mentioned the the example in Atlantic Canada. Monty and Doug, frankly, Doug Ford's got to know what his job is. He's not leading the country and he's not leading the other provinces. He has a duty and an obligation to the 15 million people who call this province home to get us through this. And he is failing. Let's turn to the vaccine rollout now. Lots of controversy, lots of uh, switches up. You know, there have been times when, frankly, it seems to me that whoever has the loudest voice gets the vaccines, and that's not necessarily the right people. I I was uh, quite perturbed, frankly, at the beginning to see all kinds of groups getting vaccinated ahead of older people who are most likely to die. And and we're seeing all kinds of pivots. What do you make of all that? I think that it's, you know, it seems to me, and and again, I'll be the first to recognize that earlier this year, there were supply issues that were concerning, I think, to Canadians and Ontarians. There still are supply issues. Uh, Well, look, I, you know, I don't know that I buy that when there were yesterday, I think 1.3 million vaccine doses still sitting in fridges across this province. So I'm, I'm not sure that I buy notwithstanding what Moderna announced a few days ago. I'm not sure that it's the same problem today that it was, let's say, in January or February. But I acknowledge there was a supply issue. I don't believe there is still a supply issue to the same extent. I was encouraged this past weekend uh, when it was made clear that Health Canada has uh, permitting provinces to lower the age eligibility for AstraZeneca. And in fact, Doug Ford did move and drop that, that that age eligibility down to the age of 40. I think that's one of the reasons we saw a significant uptick yesterday in vaccination numbers across the province, which is good news. Um, but I am still, uh, to your point, I am still concerned um, when I think of the you know people who are working in daycares across this province that have remained open even while schools have closed and they haven't been prioritized at all. I think that the provincial government moved too slowly in terms of making sure that frontline educators Uh, Not just teachers, but teachers, yes, principals, secretaries, school bus drivers, everybody in the publicly funded system was on the front line. Yeah, but they got vaccines just in time to not be going to school. And that meant other people who were still out working didn't get them. Yeah, but Libby, my kids are in an elementary school here in York Region. It's been heartbreaking to watch parents have to suffer through the anxiety and the kids and the frontline education workers of the whipsaw effect of the schools opening and then closing and then opening and and all that chaos and confusion. When our schools eventually reopen, I don't want them to close again. The only way to make that happen is to make sure frontline education staff get vaccinated. So I'm using that as an example. There are others, grocery store clerks, transit operators. You talked about earlier in this phase of vaccinations, people living in nursing homes are working there. So I think it's been, yes, a real mess from start to finish. 
I think grudgingly, Doug Ford's made some moves that make sense. I don't think they're all the way there just yet. But again, fingers crossed, they're moving in the right direction, and they should keep going in that direction. Point the fire hoses where the fire is burning brightest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a big controversy over postal codes and which postal codes got the vaccines. You know, the one thing, uh, and I think it's changed, I know that in, in my own postal code, certainly at least until fairly recently when, when all the real estate went kind of nuts, in the same postal code, I mean, you know, two blocks away from a very affluent part, you, you could have a very unaffluent part. Yeah. So I don't know that that if if there was some discrepancy with with postal codes that that you can lay all that at the feet of the government because you can have as I said different you know different socioeconomic brackets in the same code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think what's been most troubling, I will say, from from myself is the information that came out a number of days ago that suggested a bunch of what you know should have been considered hotspot postal codes were left off the list. Uh, and a bunch that weren't or shouldn't be considered hotspots were put on the list. And the allegation in media, by the way, that, you know, suggested that some of the places added when perhaps they shouldn't have been are, are uh, communities represented by conservative MPPs. And those that weren't included but maybe should have been are represented by opposition members. I've said very clearly on the record, I want to believe with all of my heart that politics did not get in the way of this decision. I'd like to believe that's true. I hope that I'm right in this regard. I did feel an obligation, as did Andrea Horvath and the NDP, to write a letter to the Auditor General asking her to do a deeper dive into this to make sure so that we do have faith in the system. She's agreed to do that analysis, and we'll wait to see what those results are. Okay. That is all the time we have with Stephen Del Duca, Liberal Leader. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thanks, Libby. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, people, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we've been talking about those Section 22 orders. Uh, what does business think of them? Some businesses are very concerned that they can do deep damage. We'll have that when we return. Also, let me give the numbers out again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be back with Rocco Rossi from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.